Safety on the rails becomes a major transportation issue in this country as investigators look at what caused a train to derail this weekend at Springfield, Ohio, sending 28 cars sliding diagonally across the track. The train had no chemicals on board, unlike the one that derailed in Ohio just over a month ago. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, U.S. lawmakers on rail safety coming up. We'll remember a woman who successfully led the fight for disability rights from her wheelchair. Judith Human helped to revive legislation that set the groundwork for the Americans with Disabilities Act. The president of the former Soviet Republic of Georgia talks about Russia's war in Ukraine and its impact on her country. And Tennessee passed a bill last week that restricts drag performances, but there's a history of laws targeting drag in the U.S. We actually have almost 150 years worth of laws uh, in this kind of zone. These stories and more coming up. It's now 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Sirius XM says it is laying off 475 employees. That's roughly 8% of its workforce. NPR's Anastasia Siulkas reports the satellite radio and audio streaming company is... The latest business to cite economic uncertainty as the reason for downsizing. SiriusXM made its layoff public in an SEC filing. In a memo to employees, CEO Jennifer Witz cited SiriusXM's need to find, quote, opportunities for greater agility and efficiency, as well as uncertain economic conditions ahead. This makes SiriusXM the latest among many media and tech companies, including NPR, to announce layoffs. Over the past several years, SiriusXM had acquired several other businesses, including the podcast company Stitcher, Pandora, and Conan O'Brien's Team Coco. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. The chairman of the Washington, D.C. Council says he's pulling back the capital city's new criminal code from congressional consideration, but... It appears the U.S. Senate plans to hold a vote anyway on the GOP-led resolution that would have the city's attempt to ease penalties on certain crimes, such as burglaries and carjackings. The criminal code revision seemed to be on track to becoming the first D.C. law in decades to be completely overturned. And President Biden said he would not block that. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said Biden is still committed to D.C. statehood. Doesn't mean that it stops our support for uh, their statehood. Uh, doesn't mean that the president has changed his mind on that. We still support that and want to see that happen. And we were going to uh, we're going to continue to encourage Congress to move in that way. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. D.C. Council Chair Phil Mendelson once again defended the proposal to revise the city's criminal code against Republican-led attempts in Congress to scrap it. It's not about the criminal code. You know, when there are comments such as that we're decriminalizing a crime that we're not decriminalizing. But if the Republicans want to proceed with a vote, it will be a uh, hollow vote because the bill isn't there. Lawmakers from both parties have characterized the bill as soft on crime. President Biden last week said he would not veto a resolution that would void the updates, adding that he doesn't support some of the changes that the D.C. Council put forward, such as lowering the maximum penalty for carjacking. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Police in Rochester, New York, are confirming at least one death as a result of a crowd surge during a rap concert in upstate New York. They say large numbers of people pushed toward exits following reports of possible gunfire, but police said today they found no evidence of a shooting. Several people, again, were injured, two of them critically, and a 33-year-old woman was killed. From Washington, this is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Massachusetts man is facing charges after prosecutors say he tried to open a plane's emergency exit door mid-flight. Officials say Francisco Torres of Lemonster pushed the exit door's handle to the unlocked position. The crew then confronted him, and he allegedly lunged at a flight attendant and tried to stab her with a broken metal spoon he was carrying. The incident happened last night aboard a United Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Boston about 45 minutes before the plane landed. Passengers tackled Torres. The crew restrained him. Torres faces a possible life sentence and a quarter-million-dollar fine if he's convicted. He's due in court Thursday. Suffolk County Sheriff Stephen Tompkins has agreed to pay $12,000 in fines for violating the state's conflict of interest law. The Massachusetts Ethics Commission said the violations include creating a paid position in his department for his niece. SWBR's Deborah Becker reports the sheriff said he didn't mean to break any laws. The commission said Tompkins' niece took the $45,000-a-year position after she moved to Massachusetts to help take care of Tompkins' young children after his wife died. The commission also said Tompkins asked other sheriff's department employees to do his personal errands. But Tompkins said his niece was qualified for that job, and he explained to the commission that people were just trying to help. If they have uh, a policy or, or law that says, I shouldn't, or people in my situation should not accept help from friends or colleagues, well then, that's the case. In 2015, the commission fined Tompkins for asking store owners to remove an election opponent's campaign signs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Also in the news, the Massachusetts Senate is expected to consider increasing state funding for supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits. The program is commonly known as SNAP, or food stamps. The Senate t- said today it will debate a supplemental state budget package Thursday. It would reinstate about 40 percent of the enhanced benefits that were in place for the last three years. Those additional federal benefits ended last week. Massachusetts House has already approved the additional state funding. In the forecast, it's been a nice day, rather chilly. You should have have a few clouds around tonight. Strong winds, temperatures in the upper 20s. Tomorrow should start out with some sunshine, then clouds eventually collect. Windy again, up around 38 degrees. And for Wednesday, same thing. Increasing clouds, windy but milder, could make it to the mid-40s. And that is where it is right now. 45 degrees at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Another freight train has derailed in Ohio. It was Saturday night, one month and one day, after a different train carrying toxic chemicals went off the tracks in East Palestine, Ohio. This latest train was not carrying hazardous materials, and no one was injured. But in the months since the East Palestine catastrophe, rail safety has come to the fore. That's why we have a three-part drive going on right now, things we're doing as a department, things that we need Congress to help with, and things that the rail industry should do right away. That was U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg speaking to NPR last month. Now, the U.S. Congress has not passed any new legislation yet, but at the state level, lawmakers are not waiting for Congress to act. Let's welcome Ohio State Representative Michelle Grimm, a Democrat, and Nebraska State Senator Mike Jacobson, a Republican. They join us now. Welcome to both of you. Thank Thank you you very much. Representative Grimm, I want to start with you. Can you just tell us how is your state doing after these two derailments? 
you know, we're obviously trying to take action now. Um, so we just passed our transportation budget out of the House floor last week um, and have two pieces of legislation in that transporta- transportation budget around rail safety. Yeah. Tell us briefly a little more what is contained in that proposal, those two aspects. Yeah. So um, one of those amendments we had was mandating two-person crew. Um, We've been hearing from rail workers for decades that um, we need a two-person crew minimum because they're afraid that the rail industry is going to try and roll back uh, some of the the safety measures there. So um, the other one is making sure that uh, railways have wayside defect detectors. So that way they can be alerted right away when there is an issue. Um, This is the first legislation in the country that would require these wayside defect detectors. And Senator Jacobson in Nebraska, I understand that at the beginning of this year, you introduced legislation to require a minimum crew size for freight trains. This was, of course, before the incident in East Palestine. Can you just explain for us why a minimum crew size is important for rail safety? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. I think that we deserve to have no less than two crew members on a train Since the engineer is going to be running the train, the conductor's there to be able to disconnect a train to allow for crossings that are getting blocked. When trains are three and a half miles long, you block a lot of crossings Mm -hmm. when they stop. In the event of a derailment, uh, the conductor has a copy of the manifest. So like in Ohio, uh, that conductor was able to get off the train, be able to identify, let the first responders know exactly what was inside each of those cars in terms of toxic material and was there to also help clear people and get people to safety. That's what having that second crew member on board the train at all times, why that's so important. And Senator Jacobson, you mentioned the FRA. It is the Federal Railroad Administration that generally regulates the rail industry across state lines. Do you see a potential hangup if there are different rail safety laws in different states or even different municipalities? I do. Uh, I, there's no question it's, it's problematic to do patchwork. Uh, I think this should be federal. Uh, what we're doing with this bill in Nebraska would just simply be putting in statute. So we're not adding crew members. There's mm-hmm. two-person crews required today. We're just going to put in statute that you're required to maintain those crew members. And then later, if the FRA meets later this summer and or if Congress will pass legislation to require it, Uh, which is what's preferable, uh, then that would be uh, the law of the land, and it would not disproportionately affect uh, railroads that are operating in one state or another. Yeah. Let me ask this question of both of you. In pushing the state legislation that both of you support in your respective states, is your ultimate goal to push the federal government to act? It's exactly what my position is, yes. I, I want the federal government to act. I'm hoping that Our bill, regardless of its fate, sends a message, uh, just as those in the other eight states that currently have such legislation, that it's time for the Mm -hmm. federal government to act. Representative Grimm? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We want the federal government to act. We have a thousand derailments a year in this country. I've just had now at least three in my state so, you know, we, we really need the federal government to act. Well, let me ask you. I mean, I realize right now at this moment we're speaking to both a Democrat and a Republican. How would 
Either of you convince the U.S. Congress to come together on this issue? You know, we work together as a bipartisan body in Ohio to bring these amendments together in our transportation budget. So, you know, we can definitely work together in a bipartisan manner and um, hopefully Congress will come together as well to show that, you know, we, we need to make sure that there's more regulation in the rail industry. Senator Jacobson? I would just tell you it is bipartisan here, uh, largely because this is not a partisan issue. Uh, This is an issue of doing the right thing. Uh, I've been a banker for 43 years. I can tell you as a banker, I don't like regulation. I don't know what the industry would look like without regulation. So a lot of people say, Mike, you're you're a, a Republican. Why are you wanting to impose a mandate on private business? And my answer to that is, that I think many of these businesses, in this case the railroads, would probably welcome universal rules that everyone would have to abide by that would, that would allow them to be on a level playing field and provide public safety. All we've heard about from all the railroad companies after this is safety is their top priority. My response to that is then prove it to me. Republican Mike Jacobson of Nebraska and Democrat Michelle Grimm of Ohio, two state lawmakers trying to push legislation for rail safety. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Let's take a moment now to remember a champion for disability rights. Judith Human died over the weekend at the age of 75. She fought to become the first wheelchair user to teach in New York City public schools. In 1977, she helped lead a protest for legislation that would lay the groundwork for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And she served in the Clinton and Obama administrations, advocating for disabled people in the U.S. and around the world. Before all that, she was a camper and counselor at Camp Jeanette, a summer camp for disabled people. For me, the camp experience really was empowering because we helped empower each other that the status quo is not what it needed to be. Jim Lebrecht co-directed the documentary Crip Camp about Camp Jeanette, and he worked alongside Judith Human as a disability activist. Welcome to All Things Considered. Oh, thank you for having me here. How did her time at Camp Jeanette influence Judith Human's life? It was a summer camp run by hippies. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> it was that kind of freewheeling spirit of the times that we experienced at that camp. You're being told that you are not your disability, you are your person. Hmm. And I know that that had to have had a big influence on Judy, but she was already kind of there, I think, you know, in the fights that her parents had to get her into public school. And when I met her in 1971, she had already sued the Board of Education to get her uh, teaching license. And it was a huge influence on me. Hmm. And that and that influence is something that many people just from Camp Jeanette experienced and led us to be getting involved in disability rights. Yeah. You wrote on Twitter that she was a mentor and friend. Can you just talk about what she was like as a person? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, Judy seemed to care about everybody. She just had just like this real huge open heart, except if you were getting in her way. Hmm. And then, you know, she was absolutely determined and motivated. If people have a chance to see uh, our film Crip Camp, you know, you see her talking to somebody from the HEW department, Health, Education, and Welfare, 
and you could hear her voice cracking. We will no longer allow the government to oppress disabled individuals. We want the law enforced. We will accept no more discussion of segregation. And I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about. You know, perhaps that is one of the most iconic moments in disability rights. I get shivers every time I see it. She once told my colleague Joe Shapiro, and I'm going to paraphrase, that the disability is not a tragedy. Being in a wheelchair is not a tragedy. It only becomes tragedy when society does not allow disabled people access and opportunities. When she started delivering that message, how revolutionary was it? I can only speak to you as someone who was 15 when he first met Judy in 1971. It was mind-opening to me. I Somehow I've been taught to be ashamed about my disability for the fact that um, I couldn't walk and used a wheelchair and my body didn't look like everybody else's, quote unquote. And to learn that I should have pride in who I am really helped me. Judy really was my mentor. She really set the course of my life in regards to how I regarded myself as someone with a disability and, and that I felt like I could make a difference because Judy had made a difference. I just wouldn't be who I am without her. That's Jim Lebrecht, filmmaker and disabled civil rights activist, remembering his friend and mentor, Judith Human, who died on Saturday at the age of 75. Thank you so much. Um, thank you very much. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered. In Iran, allegations of poisonings at dozens of girls' schools has prompted responses from the country's supreme leader, showing the pressures on the government to speak out about the continued unrest. That story and much more still to come on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. The Dow notched a four-day win streak today. It gained a little more than a tenth of a percent, 40 points, to close at 33,431. S&P rose less than a tenth of a percent to end the day at 4,048. The Nasdaq lost about a tenth of a percent to close at 11,676. Details coming up on Marketplace starts at 6.30. Right now it's 19 past four. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 
In the forecast today, turned out a lot like the first few days of the week should be. Clouds and sunshine taking turns. Tonight, partly cloudy, windy about 28 degrees. Tomorrow, maybe some sun early, then clouds move in for most of the day. Temperatures about 38. Wednesday, clouds again, along with some sunshine, windy and milder in the mid-40s. Wind should be windy once again. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One year ago, March 2022, with the war in Ukraine in full swing and awful accounts of atrocities already emerging, I traveled to Tbilisi, Georgia. Now, Georgia is a small country on the edge of Europe, across the Black Sea from Ukraine, and involved in an especially complicated relationship with its neighbor to the north, Russia. We are in a place, in, geostrategically, in a place which is under constant, uh, and you have been seeing that under constant pressure uh, from Russia. That is the president of Georgia, Salome Zorbishvili. And if anything, that's an understatement. Georgia has its own history of being invaded by Russia. In fact, on our visit, we watched Russian troops patrolling. They still occupy about 20% of Georgia since attacking in 2008. When President Zorbishvili and I spoke last year in her office at the presidential palace in Tbilisi, we talked about the challenges that war in Ukraine presents for her country. But also uh, on the positive side because there are these new windows of opportunities that are opening up and we are going to live in a different world. I think it's important that Georgia be present to seize uh, all the opportunities uh, that will be uh, possible. Well, today, President Zorabishvili is in New York from where she joins us again. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. I would love to start with your sense of how the war in Ukraine is going because um, a lot of Western leaders, as you know, had predicted that Russia would take Ukraine in days or weeks. And here we are one year in, Ukraine not backing down, but Russia not backing down either. Well, I think that Ukraine has shown an incredible uh, capacity of uh, resilience in this uh, tragic war. Of course, the price paid is very high. Uh, that Russia has exhorted from uh, Ukraine. But nonetheless, Russia has not been able to um, achieve any of the ends that were the war aims of, uh, of Russia. Uh, Ukraine has proven uh, that in 21st century, uh, Russia is not this all-powerful uh, empire that it was uh, under the Soviet Union, that it doesn't have uh, the support uh, of the population no. that uh, Ukraine I, has shown. On the other hand, as I said, it doesn't show any signs of backing down. It's hard to see how either side wins or loses outright at this point. I mean, is it possible when, when that Ukraine... a year from now you and I will be having this conversation again? Yes, uh, it might last, but when Ukraine doesn't lose, it wins. Uh, if we remember the 2008 war against Georgia, uh, that was a five days war. 
uh, and Russia was much more offensive in its relations with the other partners. Today, Russia is really isolated. And what is the main change probably that one can see is that everybody understands now what Russia is about. Uh, and that's something very uh, important. Nobody is uh, now believing that uh, Russia can do anything at once. They might not react, but we have seen in Georgia a very high number of Russians that have left Russia because they do not support any longer this type of uh, regime. Let's turn to your country. When you told me last year that comment I just played, um, that as awful as the war is, you saw opportunities for your country. One of the things uh, you mentioned as an example was Georgia had just applied for EU membership one year ago. Where does that stand? Well, those opportunities, first of all, it has to be said, were opened by Ukraine uh, and by this war and by this resilience. We didn't get the candidate status and it's a uh, big disillusionment for the Georgian population. So a big disappointment is how you would describe it. I mean, I guess I'm thinking... A big of, disappointment, yeah. but which has not changed. That's what is important. It has not changed the determination of the Georgian uh, people to support and uh, but whether it's the pressure EU on the government. NATO. Forgive me, whether whether it's the EU or NATO, I mean, realistically, how optimistic are you? You were so hopeful when I saw you a year ago that things might start to shift, and a year later, it sounds like they haven't. Well, I think it has shifted a lot. Uh, the fact that two of our partners of the Associated Trio have gotten the candidate status, and at one point in time, people were saying, oh, Georgia will never get the European neighborhood policy, will never be part of the ENP, which was a much lower step. So at each step, there were people doubting that uh, Georgia could go further. Uh, so I'm completely optimistic. I don't know how the dates will go through, but I'm sure of one thing, is that the Georgian population resilience is there. So that's what I count on. When I was in your country a year ago, we saw thousands and thousands of refugees pouring in from Ukraine, fleeing the war. Also, a lot of Russians coming in from Russia yeah. who wanted to escape their country. How has the war changed Georgia in a year? Well, uh, we have seen uh, something that is not very new for Georgia, which has been over the centuries because it was at a place of different empires or occupations. Uh, so we have always had refugees uh, or populations from outside living in this small country that is Georgia. Uh, for one year, we've had uh, Ukrainian refugees, uh, Russian refugees living together with Georgians whose territory is occupied by Russia. And uh, there was no significant incident happening between these communities. I think that is very uh, important. Whether it has changed Georgia, I wouldn't say so. Mm. What about bigger picture? And there were so many questions at the beginning of this war over whether this would mark a shift in the world order, in the in the order that has been created since the Second World War. Do you think it has? I think it has completely. The European Union uh, is no longer the European Union that was doubting before whether it could have a real defense strategy. The fact that uh, countries like Finland or Sweden uh, are now trying to join NATO uh, is an enormous shift. Uh, the relationship between uh, European Union and the United States uh, on such strategic issues has never been, I think, in the past uh, 
years, so close as it is today. Uh, so I think, yes, a new uh, geopolitical uh, image has been forged through ah. the Ukrainian war that will uh, define our future. And the very important thing for Georgia is to be part of that community, whatever the form it takes. Last question, Madam President. You're here in the U.S. You're meeting American officials here. What is your ask? What do you want Americans to know as you continue to, to lead your country and, and push for support for Ukraine? I think that uh, what I want is to share Georgia's experience, which, as I said, is a century-long experience of Russia. Uh, now the West is in the, on the verge of really discovering what is Russia. If Russians and Russian leadership does not understand that what is theirs is theirs and what is not is not, then they, can, they cannot become a full member of the community. And that will be the subject of the peace negotiations whenever they happen. That is the president of Georgia, Salome Zorbishvili, visiting New York today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Until next time. Until the next time. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics visit the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight. Baseball spring training in Florida today. There was a scary moment for the Sox. First baseman Justin Turner was hit in the face by a fastball as he was batting against the Tigers. Red Sox say he's alert in the hospital, being treated for soft tissue injuries. In today's game, Sox pitcher Chris Sale made his spring training debut. He pitched two scoreless innings, struck out two batters, and gave up two hits. The Sox beat the Tigers 7-1. to This is 90.9 WBUR, 45 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, with a new food truck available for private parties and events in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. In today's tight housing market, two demographic groups of buyers often find themselves competing. We're two different generations, and yet we're finding ourselves in the same places at the same time wanting the same thing. Boomers versus millennials. Who wins and who loses in the competition for an affordable home? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden will travel to Philadelphia on Thursday to unveil his proposed budget. Pennsylvania is considered a must-win state for Democrats in the 2024 election. Republicans, of course, took a slim majority in the House last year and have opposed almost all of Biden's budget ideas, which include a tax that targets billionaires. During a speech today at the Legislative Conference of the International Association of Firefighters, Biden said tax increases on the wealthy will be at the core of his budget plan. Much of what we're doing is about your right to be treated fairly with dignity and with respect. Part of that is making the tax system as fair. By the way, we can make all these improvements and still cut the deficit if we start making people pay fair share. Both Democrats and Republicans are trying to show the public who is most fiscally responsible as they remain at odds over raising the nation's debt ceiling. 
In North Carolina, the Democratic governor there will deliver a state of the state address tonight, and he'll likely highlight a recent deal to expand Medicaid coverage for low-income families. From member station WUNC, Rusty Jacobs has the story. North Carolina had been one of 11 holdout states refusing to expand federally subsidized Medicaid coverage under the Affordable Care Act. But late last week, leaders of the state's Republican-led House and Senate suddenly announced they had hammered out intra-caucus differences on the issue. The plan is to approve expansion as part of the two-year budget lawmakers hope to pass by July 1st. Governor Roy Cooper and fellow Democrats long pushed for expansion in the face of GOP opposition. Still, clashes between Cooper and Republican legislators loom this session over GOP efforts to tighten abortion restrictions. For NPR News, I'm Rusty Jacobs in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Federal Aviation Administration is investigating after two United Airlines planes clipped each other at Logan Airport this morning. The FAA says preliminary information indicates one plane was being towed away from the gate when it bumped into the second plane at an adjacent gate. United says nobody was hurt. It's the second safety incident at the airport in about a week. Last Monday at Logan, a JetBlue airliner had to abort landing when a Learjet on the ground crossed in front of its path. Nobody was hurt in that incident either. A Lemonster man is due in court Thursday to face charges for an in-flight incident last night on a plane bound for Boston from Los Angeles. Police say the flight was 45 minutes from landing when Francisco Torres of Lemonster tried to open the plane's emergency exit door. Then he allegedly lunged at a flight attendant and tried to stab her with a broken metal spoon he was carrying. Passengers tackled tourists and the crew restrained him. The State Department of Public Health is issuing a warning to people who fish in Massachusetts. Recent testing for PFAS found high levels of the so-called forever chemicals in fish from 13 local bodies of water at state parks. Those locations include Ashland Reservoir, Lake Cachituate in Natick, and Walden Pond in Concord. The state recommends not eating any fish at some of those places. Details can be found on the department's website. These guidelines do not extend to swimming or other recreational activities at the park. Local environmental advocates say a new treaty will protect New England's marine habitats. Nearly 200 United Nations members agreed this weekend to a high seas biodiversity treaty to better manage and conserve international waters. Sarah Ryder is the director of ocean policy at the New England Aquarium. She says the agreement will help preserve local wonders like the critically endangered North Atlantic right whales and deep sea canyons. We're really excited to see in the treaty tools being used like marine protected areas and environmental impact assessments, which are tools we look to use closer to home as the rapidly warming Gulf of Maine and waters closer to us undergo climate-related stressors. This agreement will help the U.N. work toward its pledge to protect at least 30 percent of the global ocean for conservation by 2030. And the mayor of Quincy is warning parents that teachers there may strike. The Quincy Education Association has been negotiating with city officials over a contract since last June. The union wants more longevity pay and better parental leave. The city is asking for a third-party mediator to step in and help with the talks. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Lesley University. Learn more at lesley.edu. 
No slushy weather in the forecast for this week. Just a good share of clouds, some sunshine as well. Tonight, partly cloudy, windy and chilly. Temperatures in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, clouds and sun taking turns. Sunshine early, clouds later. A high of about 38 degrees. Wednesday should rise to the mid-40s. Gray skies for the bulk of the day. No snow or even rain in the forecast. At least not now. 45 degrees now in Boston at 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from HBO Max. The HBO original drama series Perry Mason, starring Matthew Reese, returns for a new season tonight at 9 p.m. on HBO Max. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment, viking.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Tennessee passed a bill last week restricting drag shows. The law specifically bans, quote, adult cabaret performances in public or in the presence of children. And Tennessee's not alone. In more than a dozen states, Republican lawmakers have been pushing similar bills. There's a long history of laws targeting drag in the U.S., Historian Jules Gill-Peterson of Johns Hopkins University is here to give us some context. Good to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. To start in the present day, how do the Tennessee law and other bills like it aim to restrict drag? The Tennessee law is a very narrowly conceived law. It really is almost like a zoning statute. It declares where drag performance is allowed to take place how far it has to be from schools, places of worship, things like that, and who's allowed to be in the audience, specifically by equating drag with sexual performances, such as stripping or exotic dancing. It really prohibits um, children from being present in the audience. It's the first one to pass. And a lot of the other uh, legislation in other states have much more expansive definitions of drag uh, and sort of a definition of drag that essentially means being transgender in public, which is to say, you know, someone who, according to the law, dresses or wears makeup or acts in any way that supposedly reflects a gender identity different from the gender that they were assigned at birth. These other bills, I think, really raise a lot of alarm in the sense that it, they really sort of start to get to the point where imagining just walking down the street uh, in public as a trans person technically might be breaking the law. And we as a country have in a way been here before. So tell us about the history of these kinds of laws. It's far from the first time that dressing in a way that doesn't conform to gender norms has been banned in the U.S. That's right. We actually have almost 150 years worth of laws uh, in this kind of zone. So in 1863, San Francisco was actually the very first place to enact what it called a sort of cross-dressing or masquerade ordinance, which prohibited someone from being out in public if they were wearing clothing that was different from their sort of legal sex or assigned sex. And those kinds of laws really took off in the late 19th century as a way of enforcing racial segregation, of confining LGBT people people to certain neighborhoods and really, you know, empowering the police to harass and target people based on their appearance. And they were really used for many, many decades, well into the 20th century. So we're talking about a really long history here. I'm curious what this could mean for, I don't know, for example, Pride Month in Nashville in June, when this law will be in effect, if there's a drag queen on a float and children in the audience, like, 
Is the effort going to be to cover up and conceal, or is the effort going to be to throw bricks? Not encouraging violence, just making a reference to Stonewall. Exactly. I think this is the big question. On the one hand, this all feels very familiar, but on the other hand, we are in uncharted territory. The notion that the police might arrive at Pride and start arresting drag queens, or frankly, anyone, right, who could be just sort of dressed in a costume um, because there could be children in the crowd, is really, you know, kind of, Uh, an incredible thing to imagine happening. Um, But I think this is the sort of uncertainty of how these laws are written. But certainly some of the other laws being considered in other states definitely would. And so the question is, what is going to be the newfound danger that folks are going to face um, at a a popular family-friendly event like Pride? And so as a historian, what lessons do you draw from your research that you think may be applicable to this next phase of life for LGBTQ people in America. Yeah, I think the return of these kinds of anti-drag bills in their updated form, you know, is is really painful for a lot of LGBT people. There are plenty of people alive today who remember what it was like to live under these laws. And so in that sense, it's a really discouraging moment. But at the same time, that means that there's a lot of expertise and know-how in the community about how to deal with these laws, but also how to successfully oppose them. They have been repealed before. And to me, that you know reminds us that no matter what kinds of legislation are being passed today and how cruel or devastating the impact is, these aren't foregone conclusions. And so even if there isn't an inevitable progress for LGBT people in this country, by the same token, we're not necessarily locked into uh, the terrain that these new laws prescribe. They could always be opposed and they could always be overturned. Jules Gill-Peterson of Johns Hopkins University studies transgender history and the history of sexuality. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Bob Cialdini. When Cialdini was a senior in high school, he was really good at baseball. Good enough that a scout showed up at his last game of the year and handed him a piece of paper. It was a contract, an offer to play in the minor leagues. I was a center fielder, and I wanted, all my life, I wanted to be Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays, the the big center fielders at the time, and um, his pen wouldn't work. So he said, well, I've got another one in the car. So we walked to the car, and along the way, he said to me, so tell me something. Are you any good at school? I said, yes, I am. He said, good enough to get into college? Yes, I am. Good enough to finish college? Yes. Do you like it? Do you like thinking about academic things? I love it. And he put the contract away and he said, go to school, kid. Because most likely you won't get to the majors. But what you've told me is that you're good at something you really like, that should be where you go. The truth is, he was right. I mean, I was pretty good, but I couldn't hit a slider, a good slider. And I was going to be seeing a lot more good sliders if I went into professional baseball. And he, I think, understood that. And gave me advice I've always been thankful for him for providing to me. 
Don't just go where your dream is. Go where your dream is that you're good at. Where you have the skills to realize the dream. He did something that was generous and, um, and I will always be uh, indebted to him. Cialdini took the scouts' advice, and instead of going to the minor leagues, he headed off to college. He's now an author and psychology researcher at Arizona State University. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie. Angie's list is now Angie dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Amid the ongoing unrest and months of protests in Iran, there's also been something of a mystery developing. Students at dozens of girls' schools have reportedly been getting sick. And that has led to theories, even among some officials, that some form of poisoning may be taking place. Today, Iran's supreme leader weighed in on it himself. Supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei said that those responsible should be sentenced to death for what he calls a, quote, unforgivable crime, if it's proven. NPR's Peter Kenyon is following this story from Istanbul and joins us now. Hi, Peter. Hi, Elsa. So how much do we know at this point about these reports of schoolgirls getting sick? Well, uh, the incidents began in the city of Qum, and that was back in November. But only recently uh, have Iranian officials acknowledged the incidents and begun to talk about what the government is doing in response. Now, the fact that the Supreme Leader is talking about the incidents is a fairly dramatic escalation in focus, uh, much more so than the recent more generic official comments we've heard about quote, the latest plot by Iran's enemies, that sort of thing. And Khamenei saying that if the poisonings approved, execution should result, leaves open the possibility of some other cause. But really, what's remarkable is how little appears to be known about these alleged incidents. There are far more questions than answers. Uh, What, if any, toxic substance is being used? Uh, If what has been going on are deliberate attacks, who's behind them uh, and why? Well, what kinds of theories are out there about exactly what's going on at this point? Well, there is a theory. It's being voiced by a very outspoken uh, Sunni cleric, uh, Molavi Abdul Hamid. He leads the Friday prayers uh, in the southeastern city of Zahadan. Uh, he suggested that the alleged poisonings could be some kind of retaliation against students uh, for continuing to take part in anti-regime protests. They began back in September after a young woman died in police custody after she was detained for allegedly wearing her hijab improperly. That death of 22-year-old Masa Amini from a 
Iran's Kurdish minority, set off protests across Iran. Uh, it constituted what analysts saw as the biggest threat to Iran's cleric-led government uh, since it had come to power. Uh, this Sunni cleric, Abdul Hamid, also suggested the alleged poisonings could be the work of, quote, Shiite extremists who seek to deny education to girls. Now, this is not a common feeling in Iran as it is in other places uh, such as Afghanistan. Now, I have seen reports that hundreds of schoolgirls were taken to hospitals on March 5th with potential symptoms of poisoning, uh, things like respiratory ailments. Iran's interior minister says two girls uh, with what he called pre-existing conditions are still in hospital, but throughout all these reported incidents, no one has died. Wow, okay, but still horrible. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, Peter. Iran's nuclear program, meanwhile, is is back in the news. Talks have been mostly frozen while the country dealt with protests. But what's the latest on these talks now? Well, the head of the IAEA, that's the International Atomic Energy Agency, was in Tehran two days of talks uh, with the chief of Iran's atomic energy organization. Uh, now, the IAEA director, Rafael Grossi, sounded quite upbeat about what he was calling progress. Uh, then he kind of walked that back, and there's been some pushback from Iranian officials who say they'll cooperate uh, as required under the law and the nuclear agreement. Grossi says any progress will depend on future negotiations. Uh, meanwhile, the IAEA still wants to know what about these uranium particles found to be enriched to 84 percent purity, extremely close to weapons-grade fuel. That is NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks, Elsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Listeners have the chance to attend open meetings of WBUR's Community Advisory Board. The next open meeting will be held Wednesday afternoon, March 8th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. If you'd like more information, visit our website, wbur.org slash open meetings. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. This is 90.9 WBUR at baseball spring training in Florida today. A scary moment for the Red Sox. First baseman Justin Turner was hit in the face by a fastball as he was batting against the Tigers. The Sox say he is hospitalized, he's alert, and being treated for soft tissue injuries as well as being monitored for concussion. In the game today, Sox pitcher Chris Sale made his spring training debut. He pitched two scoreless innings, struck out two batters, and gave up two hits. He struggled with injuries and only played 11 games since 2020. Today, the Sox beat the Tigers in spring training 4-1. to In the forecast, look for partly cloudy skies tonight. Temperatures about 28. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine both. Clouds should win out, though. Temperatures in the upper 30s. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts Catering, full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings, Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Existence Behind the Veil. Terrence Johnson's class at Harvard Divinity School uses spiritual ideas about black identity to unpack racism. He takes us on this deep journey. It's Brilliant Boston on Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. 
Donal Ryan's novel The Queen of Dirt Island is a love story. Now, I do not mean in the traditional romantic sense. Rather, it's about the love that four generations of women in the Aylward family feel for one another. Beginning in 1982, the novel chronicles the lives of these four women in County Tipperary, Ireland, Mary, Eileen, Saoirse, and Pearl. We glimpse their struggles, their knock-the-walls-down fights, both with outsiders and amongst themselves. We glimpse their commitment to one another. Well, Donal Ryan joins me now from Limerick, Ireland. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Mary Louise. It's such a pleasure to be here. I want you to begin where the book begins, uh, with the birth of Saoirse, who becomes the narrator. Who is she? And just give us a glimpse of how she comes to be the fulcrum around which this family pivots. Sure. Uh, Saoirse is the daughter of Eileen Aylward, who is pretty much the titular queen of Dirt Island, um, who's based loosely, but quite faithfully in a way, on my own mother. Um, oh, really? And huh. Yeah. And it worked out um, to be a novel that centres women, but not quite by design. I didn't explicitly plan this. I didn't say to myself, okay, you know, the men here will be, be peripheral and attendant and the women will take centre stage. But it just kind of happened. It sounds a bit silly, but it, it was almost a magical process because I wrote the novel very quickly and Sirius's voice and what Sirius witnesses was all very clear to me and came very easily. Um, it was probably the easiest book I've written in my shortish career. Huh. And when you say, yes, this is a novel that centers women, but I didn't start out planning that it just magically came to be. Give me a, give me a little <laughs> more detail. When you say it, it just sounds, it sounds crazy. Yeah. <laughs> is it just women are at the center of, of everything or, or how did this how did this come about? Well, I guess so. That's the way it's always seemed to me from a young age, um, because in the 70s and 80s in, in rural Ireland, in most houses, the dads went to work and most houses I knew of, mum stayed at home. Now, my own mum worked in a betting office um, part-time when I was a child, but for the most part, um, I was among women because I had a sister and a mother and a grandmother who often stayed with us, and it seemed that all of the neighbourhood women would congregate in my mum's kitchen during the day. So it's the way it felt, and, you know, I, I really drew on the humour and spirit and strength of those women when I was writing this book. Eileen strode through my imagination and kind of gave the orders and told me what to do. You also imagine all kinds of horrible things happening to your characters, starting with the death of the man who is the husband of one and the son of one and, and the father of, of the third of your main female characters. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious what that was like, imagining taking, it sounds like a place inspired by this very safe central place in your own life, and then imagining, well, what if everything had spun in all kinds of different yeah. directions? Exactly. I mean, I made a pact with myself years ago when I started to write seriously. I decided I was going to try to narrow the distance between the reader and what they were reading as much as possible. I was going to try to draw on the best and worst parts and all of the variegations in between of life. And so I wasn't going to shy away from the darkness, from the, the awful things that befall people. Because life is so fragile. No. Um, I thought, you know, I'm going to try to have something in here that's, that's, that bends towards that lovely kind of dark, scathing Irish humour on, on, in every chapter, if possible. And I think it comes true mostly, I think, from Nana, to be honest. She, she's kind of a, the grandma. a raucous mm. character. Yeah, I love her. <laughs> she, she seems like she might have been the most fun to write. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I have to say, I mean, I, I do love the character of Nana. And, you know, for me, she encompasses the whole book. Um, and when I think of the book, I think 
pretty much of Nana's face and her voice and what she's saying, she became so real while I wrote. And I wrote um, an article recently that was published on LitHub and I talked about how it seemed as though there was a ghostly disembodied voice whispering inspiration in my ear for the whole 12 weeks of the writing of the first draft. And I think that voice was Nana's um, for sure. 12 weeks. Um, and this book is, the version I'm looking at, is pushing 250 pages. That's an extraordinarily fast writing pace. Yeah, I was kind of in a panic. Um, no, I didn't, I wasn't panicking during the act of writing, but I had spent the previous two years, I'd spent all of my writing time composing a much longer and much darker novel that spanned a man's lifetime. And I described it as a, a hellscape because he is coming to terms with some awful acts he's committed. And so it's a series of confessions. But I was genuinely convinced during the writing of it that this was the best thing I'd ever written. But I was very gently and kindly disabused of that notion by my publisher and editor when I sent the manuscript in. <laughs> um, but they did say that they would publish it, but it would have to be radically changed. And I hadn't, I genuinely did not have the heart to go near that book again. And I thought, you know, I could write another book. And I sat at my desk thinking, but I don't have an idea. I've got nothing. All I've got is the residue and the, the <laughs> dim, dark echo of this long novel. Yeah. And literally it felt as though I looked up through the skylight and it felt as though a voice came from heaven and said, what about a house full of women? Wow. You also, if I can just touch briefly on the structure of the book, it's very short chapters. I don't think there's a single chapter that's more than two, two pages. They're all like a page and a half, one word titles to each of the chapters. I'm curious why you wrote it that way. It felt to me almost like you were giving me um, a family photo album. You weren't going to tell me what happened every single day, every single minute, but you would give me these snapshots and and each chapter felt just like a poof, there goes the flash, here's what you see now. And it allowed me to fill in what might be happening in between. Was that intentional? Oh, that's a lovely way of putting it, Mary Louise. Thank you. And it was. I mean, the main reason for the f each chapter is actually exactly 500 words, um, no more, no less. Literally, each chapter is exactly 500 words. Yeah, yeah. Huh? Um, and I, I, it, 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 I know it sounds arbitrary, but it started to make sense because the first few vignettes I wrote worked out at around 500. And I thought just for tidiness here, I'll clip these back to exactly 500 so I can keep a very, very close eye on the construction of it. I can keep, you know, I, I can use a very, if I used a very strict modular approach, I thought I'll, I won't veer off track. I won't digress too much. Um, and I can keep a real control on the pacing of it. And it really worked. Um, but I, really I thought as well, um, it's natural. This is a natural thing because every day is one revolution of the earth um, is the exact same length. And some days are just ordinary days where you go to work and not much happens and it's a nice pleasant day. And other days are the day that one of your parents dies or you lose somebody you love or you get married or you know, or you meet the love of your life or your child is born. Some days are huge and some days seem tiny, but every day is the exact same length. And so to have these vignettes that sometimes contain a lot of action and sometimes contain just somebody thinking something, it seemed natural and right. I love that. And I can't let you go without asking what happened to the giant, dark hellscape novel. It's still here on my hard drive. Um, actually, I printed out a copy from my mom not too long ago, and she actually really likes it. I think she prefers it to the Queen of Dirt Island, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, Donald Ryan, thank you for coming and sharing this novel, which I'm so glad you wrote and put out in the world. And thanks for coming and talking to us about it. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. His new novel is The Queen of Dirt Island.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. One month after the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, the dust is clearing and the massive loss of life and dire needs are becoming clear. For Turkey alone, the quake killed at least 45,000 people, left millions homeless across a dozen cities, and caused some $34 billion in damage. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has gained national stature in the Republican Party, and now he's preparing for a run for the presidency. He will push forth an America first agenda, a common sense agenda, a freedom agenda. We'll have a profile of DeSantis and his policies. Conservative lawmakers in Kansas want to provide millions to crisis pregnancy centers. It's an effort to rein in abortions after voters protected abortion rights. And thousands of residents who live near Jack Daniels distilleries in Tennessee and Kentucky are dealing with a whiskey fungus. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Train operator Norfolk Southern is releasing new requirements designed to immediately enhance the safety of its operations. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the plan follows a massive derailment and chemical spill that devastated the community of East Palestine, Ohio last month. The preliminary findings of an investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board traced the derailment and the initial fire to an overheated axle on one of the train's tanker cars. In response, Norfolk Southern is proposing a new six-point plan to enhance safety measures. Much of it focuses on hot bearing detectors, which are installed on rail tracks and provide train crews with real-time warnings. The updated safety guidelines come just days before the CEO of Norfolk Southern is scheduled to testify before a Senate committee and after another train derailment yesterday for the company. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The FBI says four Americans were kidnapped just across the border from Brownsville, Texas. NPR's Ader Peralta has the story. Local news stations have aired videos of heavily armed men opening fire on a white minivan. The men, who are wearing body armor, then throw a woman in the bodies of what appear to be at least two men on the back of a pickup truck before driving away. According to local media, there were at least two big confrontations in the border city of Matamoros last Friday. 
traffic was disrupted and schools were closed, and it's unclear whether the Americans were caught in the crossfire or targeted by gunmen. The FBI says the white minivan was attacked shortly after crossing the border. The agency is now offering $50,000 for the return of the victims and the capture of those involved. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. Lawmakers and investors will be listening for clues this week about the economy's direction. That's when Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell speaks on Capitol Hill. NPR Scott Horsley reports the testimony comes as China's out with new targets for economic growth. Powell appears before a Senate committee tomorrow and a House panel on Wednesday. It's a chance for the Fed chairman to address some of the economic signals that have come out since the last Fed meeting a month ago. Inflation has remained stubbornly high and the job market is unusually strong. That means the central bank may have to keep interest rates higher for longer to bring prices under control. China's economic policymakers are calling for relatively modest growth this year. Government planners say they want the economy to grow by 5%. That's the lowest target in three decades. Last year's target was 5.5%, but the actual growth rate was well short of that, thanks in part to strict COVID-19 restrictions. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Stocks were little changed ahead of the Fed chairman's appearance. The Dow closed up 40 points today. The Nasdaq was down 13 points. The S&P 500 gained two points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern is calling for an increase in federal funding for school breakfasts and lunches. Today, McGovern introduced a bill to permanently raise the federal reimbursement level for school meals. McGovern tells WBUR's Radio Boston it will expand the percentage of children who are eligible for free and reduced-cost meals at school. Right now, the federal government will pay to cover free meals in schools for kids where 25% of the school population actually qualify for free or reduced lunch, so everybody will get one. We want to expand that to at least 40%. He says the bill would help states afford to offer free school meals because the federal government would take on a bigger share of the cost. A nursing home in South Yarmouth is still battling a fatal COVID-19 outbreak that began late last month. 75 residents and 20 staff members have tested positive for the virus at the Windsor Skilled Nursing and Rehab Center. 47 of them have recovered since the outbreak began. Five residents have died. A rapid response team from the State Department of Public Health is on site to assist with resident care. State representatives are remembering Massachusetts residents who have died from COVID-19. Friday marks the third anniversary of the coronavirus state of emergency in Massachusetts. Today, House members observed a moment of silence for the more than 24,000 Bay Staters who have been killed by COVID. Police in Western Mass have identified the victim in a nearly 45-year-old cold case of the so-called Granby Girl. Her name is Patricia Tucker. Investigators say today they were able to identify her using advanced genetic testing. Police say the Connecticut woman was 28 years old when her body was found along a logging road in Granby. In 1978, she had been shot. Northwestern First Assistant District Attorney Stephen Gagney says Tucker's late husband never reported her missing. Gagney says the identification is a big step forward in the case. From a human perspective, we know that this was, this was a young lady. Uh, and that we didn't know at the time, but she had family. We didn't know whether she had children, but she did. And we suspected that there may be people out there with lingering questions. Police are still investigating who killed Tucker. The Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce says the MBTA needs to pay its next general manager 450 dollars to $500,000 a year. 
The last GM made $417,000 a year. The proposed pay increase would put the salary on par with the heads of transit agencies in Washington, D.C. and Toronto. Chamber President Jim Rooney says the proposal is commensurate with the pressures to turn the transit agency around. Governor Moore Healy is looking for the T's next leader. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, windy right about 28 degrees. For tomorrow, we should have gathering clouds, strong winds, highs about 38. Then Wednesday, gray and windy, maybe a little bit of sunshine, inching up to about 45 degrees and should stay there through the week. 43 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Today marks four weeks since the devastating earthquakes in southern Turkey and northern Syria. At least 50,000 people have died. Tens of thousands more are injured. Recovery is going slowly, and many people still need urgent help with basic necessities. NPR's Fatma Tanis has been reporting from the quake zone and is now in Gaziantep, Turkey. Hey, Fatma. Hi, Ari. So after a month... Has the search for missing people ended? Unfortunately, Ari, not for many families. They are still searching everywhere for loved ones. You can see flyers around with missing persons. Hospitals are getting lots of calls. Um, But also bodies are still being found under the rubble, and many families are waiting for news. You mentioned thousands of people are injured. Some of them with critical injuries are dying. And so while the death count is not increasing at the rates that it did earlier, it's still ticking up slowly. Hmm. Now, in Syria, information is harder to come by because of the civil war there. Uh, But the United Nations says around 6,000 people died there, and also many areas have been devastated. You visited some of the worst hit areas in Turkey over the weekend. Tell us about what you saw there. Yes, I went to Kahraman Marash, the epicenter of the earthquake, and Antakya. And you know, Ari, when I stepped out of the car, my eyes immediately started burning from the dust coming out of all of the rubble. It was also difficult to breathe. The air is so polluted. Um, And so is the water in these cities. You know, they used to have drinkable tap water before, but the pipes have been destroyed in the earthquake. In Antakya, I met Hussein Dawood. He was outside his tent with his children. He's one of the millions of Syrian refugees in Turkey, um, and here he is speaking in Arabic. He says they completely ran out of water the day before and just received some bottles from aid workers, but they have no idea when they can get more, so they have to ration it, and there's nowhere to even buy some if you have money. This is something I heard all over the quake zones. And in these cities, you can still see mountains of rubble, and the few buildings that are still standing are tilted at alarming angles, and you still have people camping near them. While they have started demolition on those buildings, there's just so many that it's going to take a while. You know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of structures destroyed or deemed too dangerous to live in. And the UN says at least one and a half million people have lost their homes. You said there are these encampment sites. Tell us about the conditions people are living in. Right. So hundreds of thousands of people have left the area and gone to other parts of Turkey, but 
the thousands that are in the quake zone uh, are sheltering in tents provided by the government, uh, but there's a shortage of that too. And so there are many families who are still looking for tents to shelter in. Um, they are sleeping wherever they can find and conditions are really bad. They don't have access to toilets, uh, running water. They can't take showers. Um, several people I talked to broke down in tears as they talked about how hard they work to save money to buy homes only to lose it all. Uh, there are also a lot of other long-term needs. In one tent camp in Kahraman Marash, I met one woman with disabilities who needs a wheelchair. Her name is Samra Tash. Um, and when I introduced myself as a reporter, she didn't even wait to hear a question. She said she's been asking for a wheelchair for weeks now because she can't walk. She also said she and other people in the camp desperately need clothes, underwear, and women's sanitary products. A few families invited me inside their tents, and Ari, there was no stuff, no bags of clothes or anything. They had just had these thin mattresses and blankets. Many people are still wearing the same clothes they had on the night of the earthquake. Hmm. When the earthquake first happened, we were talking about the threat of freezing temperatures and snow. Has that situation at least improved with the passage of time and things warming up as spring approaches? Certainly during the day, it's warmer, but you know, in the nights, the temperature falls to just above freezing. And so, you know, people here aren't used to that kind of cold. And there are also, you know, rain uh, is expected this week, and it's also really windy. So with such overwhelming need, what is the response like right now? You know, there's been a lot of anger at the government's response uh, here that it came too little too late. Nowadays, you do see the government around. Uh, many departments are represented. In one area, uh, I saw narcotics police passing out children's clothes. They've set up daycare, social services, and mental health support, which is a huge need, especially for children who've been traumatized. But you still hear people saying it's not enough. Uh, Ten cities in Turkey were impacted by this earthquake and many towns and villages. And so there are areas that help hasn't reached yet. And people will need housing and all kinds of help for a long time. And not just in Turkey, but in Syria as well. Um, there, a lot of the damage has been in rebel-held areas. Um, and because of the civil war, there have been issues with the UN getting access to people. And there's a political element to all of this because Turkey's expected to have elections within the next few months. So tell us about that aspect. Yep. The election coverage is certainly ramping up here in the media. Um, and, you know, I've been noticing that uh, government officials have been sort of restricting journalists' access to quake areas and, and tent camps. Um, and the reason is that they want to stop uh, some of the negative coverage that could impact the president's chances at winning the election. So more and more, we're going to be hearing politics coming into play. It's NPR's Fatmatanis reporting from Gaziantep, Turkey. Thanks a lot. Thank you. In Kansas, the state legislature is considering directing millions of dollars to anti-abortion counseling centers. This move comes after voters decided to protect abortion rights last year. And now, conservative lawmakers want to funnel money to what are known as crisis pregnancy centers to try to rein in abortions. Rose Conlin of member station KMUW and the Kansas News Service visited one of those facilities in southern Kansas. We are at Family Life Services in Arkansas City. The sign says adoption services, parenting classes, ultrasounds, guidance. And if you go inside, you would meet Marlana Mills. 
the question that we ask prior to doing the pregnancy test is if this is positive today, are, are you thinking of abortion? Mills is the executive director of this Christian Crisis Pregnancy Center. They do anti-abortion counseling and give practical support like free baby supplies. If workers suspect a woman is what they call abortion-minded, they'll offer an ultrasound, hoping to sway her decision. Once, Mills cold-called a woman whose friend alerted the center she wanted to end her pregnancy. I said, I understand that you're pregnant and that you are considering abortion and you have friends who love you that would like for you to talk to us. Would you like to make an appointment? It did not change her mind, but we were there for her. In Kansas, crisis pregnancy centers outnumber clinics that provide abortions more than six to one. Critics call them fake clinics that try to trick women into continuing their pregnancies. Some even set up shop right next to facilities that provide abortions. And public health experts like Andrea Swartzendruber at the University of Georgia say some spread misinformation and offer controversial medical services. While they often advertise themselves as medical facilities, most of the people who staff crisis pregnancy centers are not clinically trained or licensed. None of the more than three dozen centers in Kansas are licensed medical providers or regulated by state health officials. And that's typical across the country. Still, Kansas is one of at least 17 states that gives crisis pregnancy centers taxpayer money. Now, in a post-Roe Kansas, anti-abortion lawmakers have turned their focus to dramatically expanding that funding. You've heard the motion. All those in favor signify by saying aye. The ayes appear to have it. Guys do have it. Motion carries. Last month, state senators passed a bill that would steer up to $10 million annually to the centers. It's now in the House. Center operators say the money would help women like Corby Bohawk, who brought her baby to the legislature to testify about how one Kansas center counseled her to continue an unplanned pregnancy. I was very unsure walking in those doors as to whether I was going to carry uh, Winston here to full term. Uh, but thanks to the resources in the programs offered by the center, I've gained the confidence and the structure needed to be the best mother I can be. Not everyone has a good experience. Kelsey Morris found herself at a different center after a positive home pregnancy test. She was newly married and between jobs, and money was tight. But she didn't want an abortion. She just needed a medical professional to confirm the pregnancy. When she got to the clinic in Wichita, she says workers cornered her while her husband was in another room. The entire experience was very surreal and condescending. They didn't want to believe that I wanted this baby because their entire pitch was, you don't need an abortion. She went back to the clinic a few weeks later for an ultrasound. And not long after, she says, she received a text message from someone who had gotten her phone number, saying they were praying for her to make the right decision. So you use my personal file to try and sway my medical choices. Crisis pregnancy centers don't have to keep anyone's information confidential. Many claim to follow federal health privacy guidelines, but it's not enforced. Critics like Carrie Baker at Smith College say giving the centers, known as CPCs, more money could create legal issues, especially for the growing numbers of out-of-state residents traveling to Kansas for abortions. The concern is that like, if somebody goes to a CPC and gets an ultrasound and they say you're five weeks pregnant and then later that person turns up not pregnant anymore, 
that they could use that information to criminally prosecute them. Kansas has long been at the forefront of the clash over abortion rights. And these crisis pregnancy centers are just the latest effort to curtail the procedure in a state where residents voted to protect abortion after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe. For NPR News, I'm Rose Conlin in Arkansas City. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on 90.9 WBUR, moderates in the Republican Party have been among the most popular governors in the country, but the GOP is likely to nominate an arch-conservative as its presidential nominee. That story is coming up about 20 minutes also ahead. Comedian Chris Rock is on Netflix talking about the slap he endured at the hand of Will Smith. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. Certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Dow notched a four-day win streak today. It gained a little more than a tenth of a percent, 40 points, to close at 33,431. S&P rose less than a tenth of a percent to end the day at 4,048. The Nasdaq lost just about a tenth of a percent to close at 11,676. A Peabody manufacturing facility of medical-grade gelatin is set to close by the end of the year. The closure will affect nearly 100 employees. Rosolo employees, Rosolo employees will be offered severance as operations wind down. It filed its notice of the closure to the state last week. Business news starts at 6.30 on WBUR. It's now 5.20. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years. On stage, March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Tonight should be partly cloudy, windy, about 28 degrees. Tomorrow, gathering clouds, strong winds, highs around 38. Wednesday, gray and windy, inching to about 45. Should stay there through the rest of the week. This is 90.9 WBUR. Nice sunset out there right now. It's 521. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. He hasn't officially entered the contest yet, but Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is one of the leading Republicans in the race for his party's presidential nomination. He just released a new book that highlights his pugnacious style and hardline stance on issues ranging from education to public health. And he'll get more attention as Florida's Republican-led legislature begins its session tomorrow. NPR's Greg Allen has this look at how DeSantis became what some believe is the future of the Republican Party. November's election was disappointing for Republicans in many states, but not in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis won re-election by nearly 20 points. 
We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. That's the DeSantis brand, a governor who stands firm against ideas, policies, and laws he derides as woke. In his first term following demonstrations around the police killing of George Floyd, DeSantis signed a law criminalizing even some peaceful protests. Later, his Stop Woke Act restricted what schools and businesses can say about race. A Parental Rights and Education Act, dubbed Don't Say Gay by Opponents, limits how teachers discuss sexual orientation and gender identity. He signed a law banning abortions after 15 weeks. Many of these measures are now held up by legal challenges in the courts. It's a different DeSantis than the one David Jolly got to know when both served as House members in Washington. Jolly, a former Republican congressman from the Tampa area, says DeSantis was part of the House Freedom Caucus, a group focused on cutting government spending. And at the time, you know, I described them as the shutdown caucus. DeSantis and other members used government shutdowns to push for policy changes and spending reductions. Jolly says the most impressive thing about DeSantis were the connections he made with some of the nation's top Republican donors. It's always been a question for me how he did it. And I believe it was just the commitment to fundraising and the raw political hunger of moving beyond the House. DeSantis, a Yale and Harvard-educated lawyer who served in the Navy, spent three terms in Congress before running for governor. His frequent appearances on Fox News drew the attention of President Trump, who endorsed him. DeSantis embraced it and ran a now-famous ad featuring his wife and children. Build the wall. He reads stories. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. I love that part. He was narrowly elected governor by less than half a percentage point. Two years later, after Trump was defeated, DeSantis rarely mentioned his name anymore and refused to join the chorus of supporters who said the election was stolen. Jolly says DeSantis used Trump to build his name recognition, but after being elected, he moved on. What he is incredibly skilled at, as Wayne Gretzky, the Hall of Fame hockey player, used to say, is I skate to where the puck's going. He saw it was going to be Donald Trump's party and he skated to Donald Trump very quickly. DeSantis's rise to national prominence got a boost with the arrival of the COVID pandemic. In the first months, he largely followed guidance from the Trump White House and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He shut down Florida's beaches, bars, and nightclubs. Schools were closed. When the vaccine became available, he championed it in almost daily news conferences and in a live interview where a 94-year-old World War II veteran received his shot on Fox News. Today is the day we're going to hit our 2 million wow. senior vaccinated. And I couldn't think of a better fella to be able to have that honor. So, but shortly after that appearance, in February of 2021, DeSantis' approach to COVID began to change. He soon signed bills banning face masks and vaccine mandates by businesses and government. Republican Aaron Bean, who served in Florida's Senate under DeSantis, has nothing but praise for how the governor responded to the pandemic. He went against the grain, and when that happened, you can't say Florida without now saying the free state of Florida, because Governor DeSantis has led the way. With his hiring of a new Surgeon General, Dr. Joseph Latipo, DeSantis completed his transition from vaccine proponent to vaccine skeptic. Among their many controversial recommendations, Latipo and DeSantis said men age 18 to 39 should not receive the mRNA vaccine. Nationally recognized public health experts say that recommendation is wrong and based on a faulty analysis. Bill Hanage, an epidemiologist at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, believes those policies led to an increase of COVID deaths in Florida. You know, if you compare it with California, New York, Massachusetts, and the United Kingdom, it's the only one to have more deaths since vaccines were available than before. The only one of them. 
In Florida, 60% of the total deaths occurred after vaccines were available. In the other places, it was 40% or less. DeSantis dismisses the criticism, saying Florida voters looked at its record on COVID in November and gave him a resounding vote of confidence. Not only did we win re-election, we won with the highest percentage of the vote that any Republican governor candidate has in the history of the state of Florida. As governor, DeSantis has extended his authority beyond state agencies and laws into local matters, exerting control over school boards and even businesses that hold drag shows. To the delight of supporters, he's quick to attack any who challenge him, from the media to the state's largest employers. After Disney's CEO said he'd work to overturn a law, DeSantis signed a bill ending Disney World's self-governing status in Florida. With his efforts to control local policies, he's left behind the commitment to limited government he once had as a member of the Freedom Caucus. Former Congressman David Jolly says it's a lesson he took from Donald Trump. What Donald Trump brought to the party was to really crush that orthodoxy of small government and instead say the ends justify the means. And so whatever it takes to achieve conservative results To DeSantis, it doesn't even matter if courts have said it's unconstitutional. Last year, with an eye to federal law and Florida's constitution, lawmakers drew up new maps for the state's 28 congressional districts. DeSantis didn't like the result and demanded lawmakers draw new maps that ended up eliminating two districts that favored black voters. I was completely dumbfounded, blindsided. Democratic State Senator Geraldine Thompson is an African-American lawmaker from Orlando. DeSantis's maps were challenged in court as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders, but they remained in place and helped Florida Republicans pick up four additional seats in Congress. Thompson says DeSantis's motivation in targeting black voters is clear. I think he has an interest in making sure that only certain individuals vote and that those people are people who are supportive of his agenda and then making it difficult for anyone who does not support his agenda, making it difficult for them to vote. DeSantis doesn't shy away from battles involving race. He's taken aim at programs promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in state colleges and universities. He also drew headlines when his education commissioner said he'd prohibit the use of an AP African-American studies course in Florida. Aaron Bean, now a member of Congress, says those policies aren't intended to target groups, but instead stand up for conservative principles. Bean doesn't expect DeSantis to soften his hardline stance in a campaign for president. I believe that should he go to the next level, which I think he will, that he will push forth an America first agenda, a common sense agenda, a freedom agenda. There are lots of questions surrounding a DeSantis presidential bid. Among them, how will he handle intense scrutiny from the media and attacks from other candidates, notably Trump? Up to now, he's mostly avoided interviews with mainstream media, preferring instead friendly appearances on Fox News and other conservative outlets. But there may be a more fundamental question. DeSantis' supporters have a slogan, Make America Florida. Next year, voters across the country may get a chance to decide if that's something that they want. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. 
and Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org Tanglewood. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Ukraine's president is vowing to hold on to an eastern city that Russian troops have been trying to capture for the past six months at the cost of thousands of lives. Russian forces insist they will soon occupy the region while Ukrainian defenders are staying put. The announcement from President Zelensky comes less than a week after an advisor to the president said Ukrainian troops might give up on Bakhmut and fall back to nearby positions. NPR's Joanna Kakissis is in northeastern Kharkiv, where she tells us why Bakhmut is so important to both sides. Russian President Vladimir Putin really needs a victory at this point. Uh, Ukrainian forces have pushed the Russians out of areas they occupied early in the war. And as for Ukrainians, Bakhmut has become a symbol of resistance against Russia, kind of like the city of Mariupol was in the early part of the war. And as this war drags on, the Ukrainians want to show that they will keep fighting for every inch of their land. NPR's Joanna Kakissis from Kharkiv. Governor Gavin Newsom says California will stop doing business with Walgreens after the company decided to stop distributing abortion medication in 20 states. From member station KQED, here's Scott Schaefer. Governor Newsom says California will stop doing business with Walgreens or any other company that, quote, cowers to the extremists. The pharmacy company said last week it would stop distributing the abortion pill Mifepristone in 20 states where Republican attorneys general have warned retail pharmacies they could face legal action. A spokesman for the governor said Newsom wants to use California's huge market power to push back on lawsuits aimed at limiting access to the drug. By some estimates, more than half of all pregnancies that are terminated in the U.S. are done so with medication abortions. For NPR News, I'm Scott Schaefer in San Francisco. Stocks finish mixed on Wall Street today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Suffolk County Sheriff Stephen Tompkins has agreed to pay a $12,000 fine for violating the state's conflict of interest law. Massachusetts Ethics Commission said the violations include creating a paid position in the sheriff's department for his niece. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports the sheriff said he didn't mean to break any laws. The commission said Tompkins' niece took the $45,000-a-year position after she moved to Massachusetts to help take care of Tompkins' young children after his wife died. The commission also said Tompkins asked other sheriff's department employees to do his personal errands. But Tompkins said his niece was qualified for that job, and he explained to the commission that people were just trying to help. If they have uh, a policy or, or law that says, I shouldn't, or people in my situation should not accept help from friends or colleagues, well then, that's the case. In 2015, the commission fined Tompkins for asking store owners to remove an election opponent's campaign signs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The owner of Brockton Hospital is expanding access to health care services after a fire at the hospital last month that shut down the facility. Today, Signature Healthcare announced that two new walk-in urgent care centers are open in the Brockton area. 
The hospital specialty and outpatient services have also been moved to temporary locations in the area. Signature says hospital staff could be temporarily relocated to other systems if needed. The company plans to reopen Brockton Hospital in a limited capacity three months from now. State revenue officials say tax collection is going strong. Massachusetts has brought in about a billion dollars more than anticipated during the first eight months of this fiscal year. That's about four and a half percent more than expected. Between July of last year and the end of last month, the state took in $23.6 billion in taxes. That pace is down slightly from last year's record high revenue collection that prompted the state to issue refunds to taxpayers. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu MBA. Got some sun and clouds to close out the day. Sunset is in five minutes at 540. Few clouds around tonight. Strong winds, temperatures in the upper 20s. Tomorrow could start out with sunshine, but then clouds eventually collect. Windy again, up around 38 degrees. And for Wednesday, the same thing. Increasing clouds, windy but milder, could make it to the mid-40s. 43 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with a new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Donald Trump's grip on the Republican Party looked as strong as ever over the weekend at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. But on the same day that Trump spoke at CPAC, one of his chief potential rivals for the GOP presidential nomination, that is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, drew attention with a bombastic speech in California. On top of that, a popular moderate Republican says he will not run for president. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here to tell us what this all means for 2024. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Elsa. So I want to start with former President Trump's appearance at CPAC. What was the mood like there during his speech? And what did he actually say? Well, it was certainly the Trump show. You know, the halls were lined with Trump gear, plenty of sequined hats and shirts and Trump acolytes making the rounds. His nearly two-hour speech wow. by far drew the largest crowd and the wildest applause. And he put down a marker for what he represents in 2024. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Yeah, that brought the crowd to its feet. He also said the GOP used to be ruled by, quote, freaks, neocons, globalists, open border zealots, and fools. But he made it clear that in his view, he is the future of the Republican Party and that he would run even if he was indicted, by the way. Uh, all of that was good enough for CPAC. He won the unscientific straw poll there of attendees with 62 percent, followed in a distant second by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 20 percent. Oh, so 
clearly the front runner at CPAC. It's very clear who the attendees <laughs> want to be president, at least there. But DeSantis, I understand, he gave his own speech over the weekend and got a lot of attention, right, for his policies, especially on education? That's right. He spoke at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California. And I believe parents in the state of Florida should be able to send their kids to elementary school without having an agenda jammed down their throats. They should not be teaching a second grader that they can choose their gender. That is wrong, and that is not going to happen in the state of Florida. Yeah, he also vowed to eliminate university professor tenure, uh, and he wants to eliminate diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in higher ed because he sees those as discrimination. Uh, so even though he's viewed as this potential principal alternative to Trump, you know, it's really not like he's any kind of moderate. Right, exactly. Well, one person who had been thought of as a possible moderate choice for the 2024 nomination was Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland. But I understand yesterday he said he's out. Yeah, you know, he said ultimately he didn't want to crowd out the field and make it easier for Trump to win the nomination. Here's what he said on CBS's Face the Nation. I think I can make continue to contribute toward getting the Republican bar Party back to a more traditional big tent party that can win elections again without causing uh, being part of a, uh, a train wreck that might repeat history and uh, just allow us to nominate Donald Trump as our nominee, because I think that would be bad for the party and bad for the country. You know, it's interesting because over the past decade, the most popular governors in the country consistently were Hogan, Phil Scott in Vermont, and Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, all Republican governors, all in blue states, and they have next to 0% chance of becoming G the GOP nominee for president because the heart of the party right now is with the culture warriors and not the pragmatists. Exactly. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you, Domenico. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. When Chris Rock finally spoke publicly about getting slapped by Will Smith during last year's Oscars broadcast, he did not hold back. In a stand-up comedy set, he joked that he even watched Smith's Civil War-era movie Emancipation differently. I have rooted for Will Smith my whole life. And now I, I watch Emancipation just to see him get whooped. <laughs> got me rooting for Massa, okay? That joke was part of an eight-minute barrage of barbs and reaction during Chris Rock's live special for Netflix called Selective Outrage. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins watched it. Hi, Eric. Hi. You wrote about the special on our website, npr.org, and noted how angry he still is about what happened, and specifically at Will and Jada Pinkett Smith. What's his side of that story? Well, uh, Chris Rock basically said that he was unfairly drawn into this drama that's been surrounding that couple after they talked publicly about Jada sleeping with her son's friend. And uh, Rock said that Smith was a coward and picked on him, he's much smaller uh, than Will Smith, to deal with his frustrations. And of course, he, he did that using a lot of curse words we can't say or play on the radio. But uh, Rock also noted that his beef with Jada uh, goes all the way back to 2016, when she said during the Oscars So White controversy that he should quit hosting the Oscars after Smith didn't get nominated for his role in the movie Concussion. Now, at first, Chris Rock kind of, he was so emotional, he kind of messed up the punchline, but eventually he got the joke out. Let's listen to a clip of that. She said, uh, me, a grown man should quit his job because her husband didn't get nominated for concussion. And then this gives me a concussion, okay? <laughs> 
So you can tell he's pretty emotionally wound up by that point. Yeah. What did you make of his response to all this? He's not given an in-depth interview to anybody, so it's kind of his most extensive public comment on what happened. Yeah, you know, I'm no psychologist, right? But listening to all his anger on Saturday, I mean, it felt like the slap had happened last week as mm -hmm. opposed to last year. And there was this moment where he insisted he's not a victim, saying he wasn't crying to Oprah or Gail King and boasting that he took this slap like a boxer taking a punch. So he seemed to be trying really hard to take this moment that seemed emasculating and spin it into a show of power and perseverance. And even his decision to make all these statements in a stand-up comedy performance, that's something he controls and that he would profit from. That seemed a, kind of an effort to present his side in the most comfortable environment possible for him, in a routine that he's honed over a bunch of previous stand-up concerts. Now, I'm still interested in seeing what he might say about this in a couple more years, when maybe he's further from the pressure to talk about it all, and he has a little more time to process everything. Uh, as you noted, this talk about Will Smith came at the end of a stand-up special that was more than an hour long. What else did Chris Rock talk about, and how was the special as a whole? Like, was it funny? Well, you, okay, humor is a real subjective thing. And I'm somebody who's watched and covered Chris Rock's career for a very long time. I think he's one of the best stand-up comics in the game, but I also expect a lot from him in a showcase like this that was hyped up so much by Netflix. I was surprised by how outdated some of this felt. He talked about Meghan Markle and the Kardashians and O.J. Simpson, for example. Parts of his show seemed calibrated to draw criticisms from liberals. He joked about people setting a woke trap for you at work, trying to take your job when you say something politically incorrect. And he joked about how dating women around his age, he's 58, means that they ask you to help fix their roof or help keep car mechanics from ripping them off. I mean, because he's such a great comic, a lot of this was actually funny, but it also felt kind of dated and could be insulting to women. And I, I was just hoping for something that had a little more insight and a little less empty provocation. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. All right, well, having Jack Daniels distilleries as a neighbor might sound like an awesome thing. It has turned into quite a hassle for thousands of rural residents in both Tennessee and Kentucky. The problem is whiskey fungus. Yeah, you heard that right, fungus that is growing on trees and homes nearby. Jenna Patton, who reports for the Lexington Herald Leader, joins us now. Hi there. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks for being with us. Okay, what what is whiskey fungus anyway? It's probably been around as long as man has made alcohol and stored it. What it grows on, what it really loves about the distilleries is the alcohol vapor that comes off of the aging barrels, which sometimes called the angel's share because as the barrel uh, evaporates alcohol, the alcohol inside the barrel gets less and less, so they call that the angel share, the mm. share the angels get. Right. It's this black fungus that grows almost any surface. It's very, very common. It grows on trees. It grows on walls. It grows here in Kentucky on street signs, mm. on people's houses, 
on playground equipment. And you said it's black. What else about it? Like, what's the texture like? What does it smell like? Well, it doesn't really smell like anything, I don't think. But I'm told it's very sticky. It's Mm. very hard to get off houses. In central Kentucky, where we have a lot of bourbon distilleries, uh, people become familiar with this. They sometimes have to pressure wash their houses once or twice a year to just get this stuff off. Wow. Well, what has the company Jack Daniels said so far about this problem? Like, are they offering to help with it at all? Jack Daniels has said they are cooperating. And right now in Tennessee, a woman who owns a wedding venue has sued and gotten the zoning board to stop construction of a new warehouse, at least temporarily. And Jack Daniels, which is owned by Brown Foreman in Louisville, uh, says they're cooperating, but they don't really seem too enthusiastic about the idea of mitigating the alcohol vapor, which has been the demand for a lot of the communities in central Kentucky mm-hmm. who have been having these zoning fights to stop the big campuses of rick houses, which is what the barrel warehouses are called, from cropping up in their neighborhoods. Well, I imagine that there's some tension between you know, the jobs that Jack Daniels brings to the community versus all the fungus that's really bothering that same community. Yeah, it's definitely a tension because these are communities that rely on this major employer and they're seen as a real economic boon. Usually officials are pretty welcoming. They really want these things because they bring a lot of economic gains to the community. But in the last year, in three Kentucky counties, there's been this pushback against expansions. So I think the tension is definitely growing. So is there any kind of filter or other way to slow down the spread of this fungus? Actually, there is. In California, where the issue isn't whiskey fungus, but air quality, Mm -hmm. they have put on to uh, distilleries and warehouses for aging brandy, a system that collects all of the alcohol vapor and then burns it off. You know, I think that citizens would like to see these kinds of systems put into place here as well if the expense can be covered. Janet Patton from the Lexington Herald-Leader, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Red Sox first baseman Justin Turner is hospitalized in stable condition today after he took a fastball to the face this afternoon in a spring training game against the Tigers. Turner fell to the ground and started to bleed. He was walked off the field with some help. The Sox say Turner is alert and in good spirits. Meanwhile, Detroit pitcher Matt Manning is apologizing for the incident. He says the pitch to the face was a complete accident. The ball just got away from him. The Sox game was debut for pitcher Chris Sale today. He pitched two scoreless innings, struck out two batters, and gave up two hits. Sox beat the Tigers 7-1. to Celtics try to right the ship tonight as they pay a call on the Cleveland Cavaliers, 7 o'clock tip-off time. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American Art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. In the forecast, should be partly cloudy, windy, and dry tonight, about 28 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine early, but then clouds move in for the majority of the day, moving up to about 38 degrees. 42 degrees now in Boston at 549. 
I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Existence Behind the Veil. Terrence Johnson's class at Harvard Divinity School uses spiritual ideas about black identity to unpack racism. He takes us on this deep journey. It's Brilliant Boston on Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Taliban announced the start of the high school and college spring semester in parts of Afghanistan today, but only for men and boys. So a handful of Afghan women pleaded with their male classmates, all of us or none of us. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. Since seizing power 18 months ago, the Taliban have progressively banned most females from any education beyond grade six, arguing it's against Afghan cultural norms and religion. In December, they banned women from attending university. The ban came at the close of the winter semester. At the time, some men walked out of class in solidarity with female students who'd been banned from attending. So as high school and college resumed, a handful of activists shared a letter reminding their male classmates that they promised to stand in solidarity with female students. It reminded the men they'd even chanted a slogan, all or no one. They said, we will not go to universities without our sisters. It's a reminder for men to keep their promise. This is one of the letter's authors. She requested anonymity because activists like her have faced detention, torture, sexual assault and beatings. She said women would keep fighting. I wanted to show that we don't sit silent and we will fight in every way that we can. We will fight. Like with graffiti. In a video sent to NPR, the young woman, her face covered, sprayed all or no one on a wall in Kabul. On another, she sprayed death to the Taliban. As boys returned to school and girls stayed home, Richard Bennett, the United Nations official tasked with monitoring human rights in Afghanistan, had this to say today. The abysmal treatment of women and girls is intolerable and unjustifiable on any ground, including religion. He described the Taliban of carrying out an intentional and calculated policy to erase women and girls from public life. As for the letter, it wasn't clear if any men heeded the women's call to stay home. The Taliban have typically been much harsher against men who criticise them than women. But the women say the difference is they're being denied their rights simply for being women. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. Writer Kazuo Ishiguro may need a bigger bookshelf soon. He's up for the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for Living, his remake of a Japanese film. And if he wins on Sunday, he would have a Nobel Prize, a Booker Prize, a Knighthood, and an Oscar. NPR's Bilal Qureshi spoke with Sir Ishiguro and has this story. In 1952, Japanese director Akira Kurosawa released what is now considered a classic of world cinema, Ikiru. I first saw Ikiru when I was about 11 or 12 on British TV at a time when it was very difficult to see any Japanese movies in England. And it made a terrific impact on me. 
It's a story about a bureaucrat in a dead-end job in post-war Japan who receives a, a diagnosis of cancer and learns he has six months left to live and therefore starts to think about what living really means. That's Pico Iyer, who lives in Japan and has written about the film. Ikiru means to live, and that's what suddenly he has to address. Kazuo Ishiguro was born in Nagasaki, two years after Ikiru was released. He moved to England with his family when he was only five, and Japanese cinema became a bridge to his past. Seventy years later, he's written his version of the story, transplanted to post-war London. The idea wasn't just to do a kind of translation of the original film into a British setting. I mean, it was to take that material and kind of marry it with other things that I and uh, you know, others wanted to say about British society. The film opens with a sea of gentlemen in bowler hats and umbrellas marching to their London offices. Living is about a guy who is almost buried by bureaucracy. He's the guy who works in the, in the local authority. And he's just ground down by work. He's just become a kind of a zombie. Mr. Rusbridger, why does this D-19 come back to us? The actor Bill Nye is also nominated for an Oscar for his lead performance as Mr. Williams. Reserved to a fault, but crumbling beneath the surface following his diagnosis. You see, this is rather a bore, but the doctors have given me six months. Eight or nine at a stretch. Again, critic Pico Iyer. Isha's great strength has always been for catching that bittersweet moment that just pierces you towards the end of your life when you're wondering what your life has amounted to. That strength was part of the official citation for Kazuo Ishiguro's 2017 Nobel Prize for Literature, which described him as a writer who has, quote, uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world. To be honest, Bill, I, I, I never quite understood that Nobel citation. <laughs> I, I stared at it for a long time. and <laughs> um, it, it, it sounds good. <laughs> uh, I wasn't about to complain. But he acknowledges that his focus on internal reckonings is indeed a recurring theme. It's at the heart of his two most famous novels, The Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, which were adapted for the screen by other filmmakers. A man cannot call himself well-contented until he has done all he can to be of service to his employer. If anyone knows those novels or the movies that, that have been made from them, they can probably see that there's a relationship with living and with Ikiru. None of you will do anything except live the life that has already been set out for you. And sometime around your third donation, your short life will be complete. That's what you're created to do. It's a way of setting up that urgent question so what do you do with your life? You know, what, what is really important in life when you become highly aware of its, you know, how, how limited it is, how short it is? One of the most powerful scenes in the new film version of Living is a musical sequence. After his diagnosis, Mr. Williams, as played by Bill Nye, goes on a bit of a bender, and during a raucous night out at a piano bar, sings a Scottish folk song that he shared with his wife. My leaves were I wanted the audience to remember that he's singing this song that he associates with his late wife. And that that part of him that perhaps died way back then, he has, he has found again. He's, he's, he's revived somewhere. The writer Pico Ayer says the new version of Living retains the bittersweet essence of its Japanese original, 
but it is not just a remake. Ikiru by Kurosawa seems to me a film about Japan. Living by Ishiguro and his colleagues seems to me a film about humanity. Living is a very small, intimate film, and it's nominated this year for a screenwriting Oscar in the same category as Top Gun Maverick. But the competition isn't the point, says Kazuo Ishiguro. What's important is, you know, are the stories being told well? Are they being told honestly? Do they resort to emotional manipulation? Or do they actually, do they actually contain something you could call some version of the truth about the way we live? Um, you know, I think these are very important questions, and I think these are the questions that get asked at award season. Bilal Qureshi, NPR News. And this is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at WTGrantFoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. 41 degrees now in the Boston area. We should have a few clouds around tonight, some strong winds, temperatures in the upper 20s. Tomorrow could start out with some sunshine, but then clouds should eventually collect for the bulk of the day. Windy once again, up around 38 degrees. And then for Wednesday, pretty much the same thing. Increasing clouds, windy but milder, could make it to the mid-40s. Again, 41 degrees now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We have a thousand derailments a year in this country. We really need the federal government to act. Lawmakers respond to calls that they take action to prevent more train derailments after a second Norfolk Southern Trail derails in Ohio. Today is Monday, March 6th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Judith Human was a survivor of polio and she was a disability rights activist. In 1977, from her wheelchair, she helped to revive legislation that set the groundwork for the Americans with Disabilities Act. We remember her and her tactics. The president of Georgia talks about how her country is faring a year into Russia's war with Ukraine. And Tennessee passed a bill last week restricting drag performances, but these kinds of targeted bills are fairly common in the United States. We actually have almost 150 years worth of laws uh, in this kind of zone. First, this news.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Norfolk Southern is pledging to spend millions of dollars to help cover the cost of last month's derailment of one of its freight trains in Palestine, Ohio, including providing money to cover the cost of fire response and equipment from nearby Pennsylvania that became contaminated when responding to the fiery crash. Meanwhile, at the White House today, Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre said the cost of cleanup should be paid by the rail line, and she held support so far from lawmakers for efforts to prevent future crashes. They made this mess, and they need to clean up this mess. Uh, We are pleased by the bipartisanship that we're currently seeing in Congress uh, to put forward some true common-sense safety measures. Uh, That is something that we want to continue to move forward. Norfolk Southern, meanwhile, has announced new regulations and safety standards following the incident. Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown has also said he'll hold the rail company accountable accountable. Law enforcement officers in Germany and Ukraine are announcing they've apprehended cyber criminals in both countries with ties to ransomware. The arrest came during a time of global focus on combating digital theft and extortion, as we hear from NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. Ukrainian police officers are in the middle of a war zone, but that hasn't stopped their work to try to combat cybercrime. More than a year after Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, law enforcement officers in Ukraine and Germany have teamed up to arrest individuals linked to ransomware attacks in both countries. The criminals are connected to what's been called the Doppelpamer cybercrime group. The attackers distributed malware through phishing and spam emails and used a tool that automatically shuts off security programs on the devices of those targeted. The local government in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, as well as Kia Motors have been attacked. European law enforcement body Europol is supporting the ongoing investigation. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. President Biden travels to Pennsylvania this week where he'll unveil his proposed budget. Biden has hinted that tax increases on the wealthy will be at the core of his budget initiative, including higher taxes on billionaires. He'll be in Philadelphia Thursday. Stocks ended the day mixed ahead of two days of testimony by the Federal Reserve. NPR's David Gurr reports. The Dow and the S&P 500 gained a little ground during a volatile day of trading, but the tech-heavy Nasdaq was down slightly. Tesla's share price fell by 2% after the company cut its car prices again. And Snapchat's parent company saw its stock spike almost 9.5% higher as lawmakers threatened to subject the maker of its rival, TikTok, to more scrutiny. What Wall Street really wants to know is how recent economic data will shape the Federal Reserve's fight against high inflation, which is still nowhere near its target of 2%. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell testifies before the Senate Banking Committee on Tuesday and the House Financial Services Committee on Wednesday. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Looking at the numbers, the Dow closed up 40 points today. The Nasdaq was down 13 points. The S&P 500 rose two points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. School officials in Boston are asking parents and caregivers for help after several middle school students ate what they believe were cannabis-infused edibles today at school. It happened at the K-8 Tobin School. Officials say one student had to be hospitalized as a precaution. A Boston Public School spokesperson says the district is encouraging caregivers to talk with students about the risks and consequences associated with these products. School officials are investigating how the children got the edibles. A central Massachusetts man is facing charges after prosecutors say he tried to open a plane's emergency exit door mid-flight. 
Officials say Francisco Torres of Lemonster pushed the exit door's handle to the unlocked position. The crew then confronted him, and he allegedly lunged at a flight attendant and tried to stab her with a broken metal spoon he was carrying. The incident happened last night aboard a United Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Boston about 45 minutes before it landed. Passengers tackled Torres, and the crew restrained him. Torres faces a possible life sentence and a quarter-million-dollar fine if he's convicted. He was due in court on Thursday. Airline safety is at issue at Logan for another reason. Two planes made contact on the tarmac this morning. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports a federal investigation has been launched. Preliminary information from the Federal Aviation Administration says the wing of a Newark-bound United Airlines plane hit the tail of a parked United plane at an adjacent gate while the Newark flight was being towed. The airline says no passengers were hurt and arrangements were being made to get them to their destinations. Just last week, Logan Airport made headlines after a JetBlue flight was forced to divert while landing to avoid colliding with a private jet on the runway. No passengers were hurt. The FAA is investigating both incidents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The State Department of Public Health is issuing a warning to people who fish in Massachusetts. Recent testing for PFAS found high levels of the so-called forever chemicals in fish from 13 local bodies of water at state parks. These include locations including Ashland Reservoir, Lake Cochituate and Natick, and Walden Pond in Concord. At some of the parks, the state recommends not eating any fish. Details can be found at the department's website. These guidelines do not extend to swimming or other recreational activities at the parks. Massachusetts Senate is expected to consider increasing state funding for supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits. The program is commonly known as SNAP, or food stamps. The Senate said today it will debate a supplemental state budget package Thursday. It would reinstate about 40 percent of the enhanced benefits that were in place for the last three years. Those additional federal benefits ended last week. The Massachusetts House has already approved additional state funding. And the mayor of Quincy is warning parents that teachers may strike. The Quincy Education Association has been negotiating with city officials over contracts since last June. The union wants more longevity pay and better parental leave. The city is asking for a third-party mediator to step in and help with the talks. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Temperatures should be around the mid to upper 20s for a low. Strong winds overnight tonight. Winds still kicking around tomorrow. Clouds mixed with sunshine during the day. Clouds should eventually win out. Still breezy in the upper 30s for a high. And then Wednesday should be overcast and milder in the mid 40s. Should be dry throughout the entire stretch. This is WBUR. 43 degrees now at 607. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Another freight train has derailed in Ohio. It was Saturday night, one month and one day after a different train carrying toxic chemicals went off the tracks in East Palestine, Ohio. This latest train was not carrying hazardous materials and no one was injured. But in the months since the East Palestine catastrophe, rail safety has come to the fore. That's why we have a three-part drive going on right now. Things we're doing as a department things that we need Congress to help with, and things that the rail industry should do right away. 
That was U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg speaking to NPR last month. Now, the U.S. Congress has not passed any new legislation yet, but at the state level, lawmakers are not waiting for Congress to act. Let's welcome Ohio State Representative Michelle Grimm, a Democrat, and Nebraska State Senator Mike Jacobson, a Republican. They join us now. Welcome to both of you. Thank Thank you. you very much. Representative Grimm, I want to start with you. Can you just tell us how is your state doing after these two derailments? You know, we're obviously trying to take action now. Um, So we just passed our transportation budget out of the House floor last week um, and have two pieces of legislation in that transportation budget around rail safety. Yeah. Tell us briefly a little more what is contained in that proposal, those two aspects. Yeah. So um, one of those amendments we had was mandating two-person crew. Um, We've been hearing from rail workers for decades that um, we need a two-person crew minimum because they're afraid that the rail industry is going to try and roll back uh, some of the the safety measures there. So um, the other one is making sure that uh, railways have wayside defect detectors. So that way they can be alerted right away when there is an issue. Um, This is the first legislation in the country that would require these wayside defect detectors. And Senator Jacobson in Nebraska, I understand that at the beginning of this year, you introduced legislation to require a minimum crew size for freight trains. This was, of course, before the incident in East Palestine. Can you just explain for us why a minimum crew size is important for rail safety? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. I think that we deserve to have no less than two crew members on a train. Since the engineer is going to be running the train, the conductor is there to be able to disconnect a train to allow for crossings that are getting blocked. When trains are three and a half miles long, you block a lot of crossings Mm -hmm. when they stop. In the event of a derailment, uh, the conductor has a copy of the manifest. So like in Ohio, uh, that conductor was able to get off the train be able to identify, let the first responders know exactly what was inside each of those cars in terms of toxic material, and was there to also help clear people and get people to safety. That's what having that second crew member on board the train at all times, why that's so important. And Senator Jacobson, you mentioned the FRA. It is the Federal Railroad Administration that generally regulates the rail industry across state lines. Do you see a potential hang-up if there are different rail safety laws in different states or even different municipalities? I do. Uh, There's no question it's it's problematic to do patchwork. Uh, I think this should be federal. Uh, What we're doing with this bill in Nebraska would just simply be putting in statute. So we're not adding crew members. There's Mm -hmm. two-person crews required today. We're just going to put in statute that you're required to maintain those crew members. And then later, if the FRA meets later this summer, and or if Congress will pass legislation to require it, uh, which is what's preferable, uh, then that would be uh, the law of the land. And it would not disproportionately affect Uh, railroads that are operating in one state or another. Yeah. Let me ask this question of both of you. In pushing the state legislation that both of you support in your respective states, is your ultimate goal to push the federal government to act? It's exactly what my position is, yes. I, I want the federal government to act. I'm hoping that our bill, regardless of its fate, sends a message Uh, just as those in the other eight states that currently have such legislation, that it's time for the Mm -hmm. federal government to act. Representative Grimm? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, we want the federal government to act. We have a thousand derailments a year in this country. I've just had now at least three in my state. So, you know, we, we really need the federal government to act. Well, let me ask you, I mean, I realize right now at this moment, we're speaking to both a Democrat and a Republican. How would either of you convince the U.S. Congress to come together on this issue? You know, we work together as a bipartisan body in Ohio to bring these amendments together in our transportation budget. So, you know, we can definitely work together in a bipartisan manner and um, hopefully Congress will come together as well to show that, you know, we, we need to make sure that there's more regulation in the rail industry. Senator Jacobson? I would just tell you it is bipartisan here, uh, largely because this is not a partisan issue. Uh, This is an issue of doing the right thing. Uh, I've been a banker for 43 years. I can tell you as a banker, I don't like regulation. I don't know what the industry would look like without regulation. So a lot of people say, Mike, you're you're a, a Republican. Why are you wanting to impose a mandate on private business? And my answer to that is that I think many of these businesses, in this case the railroads, would probably welcome universal rules that everyone would have to abide by that would that would allow them to be on a level playing field and provide public safety. All we've heard about from all the railroad companies after this is safety is their top priority. My response to that is then prove it to me. Republican Mike Jacobson of Nebraska and Democrat Michelle Grimm of Ohio, two state lawmakers trying to push legislation for rail safety. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's take a moment now to remember a champion for disability rights. Judith Human died over the weekend at the age of 75. She fought to become the first wheelchair user to teach in New York City public schools. In 1977, she helped lead a protest for legislation that would lay the groundwork for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And she served in the Clinton and Obama administrations, advocating for disabled people in the U.S. and around the world. Before all that, she was a camper and counselor at Camp Jeanette, a summer camp for disabled people. For me, the camp experience really was empowering because we helped empower each other that the status quo is not what it needed to be. Jim Lebrecht co-directed the documentary Crip Camp about Camp Jeanette, and he worked alongside Judith Human as a disability activist. Welcome to All Things Considered. Well, thank you for having me here. How did her time at Camp Jeanette influence Judith Human's life? It was a summer camp run by hippies. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) It was that kind of freewheeling spirit of the times that we experienced at that camp. You're being told that you are not your disability. You are your person. Hmm. And I know that that had to have had a big influence on Judy, but she was already kind of there, I think, you know, in the fights that her parents had to get her into public school. And when I met her in 1971, she had already sued the Board of Education to get her uh, teaching license. And it was a huge influence on me. Hmm. And that and that influence is something that many people just from Camp Jeanette experienced and led us to be getting involved in disability rights. Yeah. You wrote on Twitter that she was a mentor and friend. Can you just talk about what she was like as a person? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, Judy seemed to care about everybody. 
she just had just like this real huge open heart except if you were getting in her way Hmm. and then you know she was absolutely determined and motivated if people have a chance to see uh, our film Crip Camp you know you see her talking to somebody from the HEW department health education and welfare and you could hear her voice cracking we will no longer allow the government to oppress disabled individuals we want the law in force we will accept no more discussion of segregation and i would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when i don't think you understand what we are talking about you know perhaps that is one of the most iconic moments in disability rights i get shivers every time i see it she once told my colleague Joe Shapiro, and I'm going to paraphrase, that the disability is not a tragedy. Being in a wheelchair is not a tragedy. It only becomes tragedy when society does not allow disabled people access and opportunities. When she started delivering that message, how revolutionary was it? I can only speak to you as someone who was 15 when he first met Judy in 1971. It was mind-opening to me. I Somehow I'd been taught to be ashamed about my disability for the fact that um, I couldn't walk and used a wheelchair. My body didn't look like everybody else's, quote-unquote. And to learn that I should have pride in who I am really helped me. Judy really was my mentor. She really set the course of my life in regards to how I regarded myself as someone with a disability and and that I felt like I could make a difference because Judy had made a difference. I just wouldn't be who I am without her. That's Jim Lebrecht, filmmaker and disabled civil rights activist, remembering his friend and mentor, Judith Human, who died on Saturday at the age of 75. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Marketplace has all the day's business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with The Great Leap. A friendship game of basketball midst turmoil at Tiananmen Square turns into a different game. Through March 19th, lyricstage.com. The Dow notched a four-day win streak today. It gained a little more than a tenth of a percent, 40 points, to close at 33,431. S&P rose less than a tenth of a percent. It ended the day at 4,048. The Nasdaq lost about a tenth of a percent to close at 11,676. A Peabody facility that manufactures medical-grade gelatin is set to shut down by the end of the year. The Russolo plant has been operating at the site in Peabody for more than two centuries. Roughly 100 employees will be offered severance packages. The company is one of Peabody's largest landowners. This is WBUR. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org.
Tonight, the Celtics are shorthanded. Jason Tatum won't be playing in the game against the Cavaliers. He's got a knee contusion. Al Horford and Robert Williams are also injured and will sit out the game. 7 o'clock start time. Red Sox first baseman Justin Turner is hospitalized in stable condition after he took a fastball in the face this afternoon with a spring training game against the Tigers. Turner fell to the ground and started to bleed. He was walked off the field with some help. The Sox say Turner is alert and in good spirits. Meanwhile, Detroit pitcher Matt Mann Manning is apologizing for the incident. He says the pitch to the face was completely accidental. The ball just got away from him. Meanwhile, the Sox game was the debut for spring training for the pitcher, Chris Sale. He pitched two scoreless innings, struck out two batters, and gave up two hits. Sox beat the Tigers 7-1. to We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One year ago, March 2022, with the war in Ukraine in full swing and awful accounts of atrocities already emerging, I traveled to Tbilisi, Georgia. Now, Georgia is a small country on the edge of Europe, across the Black Sea from Ukraine, and involved in an especially complicated relationship with its neighbor to the north, Russia. We are in a place, and geostrategically in a place, which is under constant, and you have been seeing that under constant pressure from Russia. That is the president of Georgia, Salome Zorbishvili. And if anything, that's an understatement. Georgia has its own history of being invaded by Russia. In fact, on our visit, we watched Russian troops patrolling. They still occupy about 20% of Georgia since attacking in 2008. When President Zorbishvili and I spoke last year in her office at the presidential palace in Tbilisi, we talked about the challenges that war in Ukraine presents for her country. But also uh, on the positive side because there are these new windows of opportunities that are opening up and we are going to live in a different world. I think it's important that Georgia be present to seize uh, all the opportunities uh, that will be uh, possible. Well, today, President Zorbishvili is in New York from where she joins us again. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. I would love to start with your sense of how the war in Ukraine is going, because um, a lot of Western leaders, as you know, had predicted that Russia would take Ukraine in days or weeks. And here we are one year in, Ukraine not backing down, but Russia not backing down either. Well, I think that Ukraine has shown an incredible uh, capacity of um, resilience in this uh, tragic war. Of course, the price paid is very high. Uh, that Russia has exhorted from uh, Ukraine. But nonetheless, Russia has not been able to um, achieve any of the ends that were the war aims of uh, of Russia. Uh, Ukraine has proven uh, that in 21st century, uh, Russia is not this all-powerful empire that it was uh, under the Soviet Union, that it doesn't have uh, the support Uh, of the population that uh, Ukraine has shown. On the other hand, as I said, it doesn't show any signs of backing down. It's hard to see how either side wins or loses outright at this point. I mean, is it possible that a year from now you and I will be having this conversation again? Yes, uh, it might last, but when Ukraine doesn't lose, it wins. Uh, If we remember the 2008 war against Georgia, 
uh, that was the Five Days War. Uh, and Russia was much more offensive in its relations with the other partners. Today, Russia is really isolated. And what is the main change probably that one can see is that everybody understands now what Russia is about. Uh, and that's something very uh, important. Nobody is uh, now believing that uh, Russia can do anything it wants. They might not react, but we have seen in Georgia a very high number of Russians that have left Russia because they do not support any longer this type of uh, regime. Let's turn to your country. When you told me last year, that comment I just played, um, that as awful as the war is, you saw opportunities for your country. One of the things uh, you mentioned as an example was Georgia had just applied for EU membership one year ago. Where does that stand? Well, those opportunities, first of all, it has to be said, were opened by Ukraine uh, and by this war and by this resilience. We didn't get the candidate status and it's a uh, big disillusionment for the Georgian population. So a big disappointment is how you would describe it. I mean, I guess I'm thinking... A big of, disappointment, yeah. but which has not changed. That's what is important. It has not changed the determination of the Georgian uh, people to support and uh, but whether it's the pressure EU on the government. NATO, forgive me, whether, whether it's the EU or NATO, I mean, realistically, how optimistic are you? You were so hopeful when I saw you a year ago that things might start to shift and... A year later, it sounds like they haven't. Well, I think it has shifted a lot. Uh, the fact that two of our partners of the Associated Trio have gotten the candidate status. And at one point in time, people were saying, oh, Georgia will never get the European neighborhood policy, will never be part of the ENP, which was a much lower step. So at each step, there were people doubting that uh, Georgia could go further. Uh, so I'm completely optimistic. I don't know how the dates will go through. But I'm sure of one thing is that the Georgian population resilience is there. So that's what I count on. When I was in your country a year ago, we saw thousands and thousands of refugees pouring in from Ukraine, fleeing the war. Also, a lot of Russians coming in from Russia yeah. who wanted to escape their country. How has the war changed Georgia in a year? Well, uh, we have seen uh, something that is not very new for Georgia, which has been over the centuries because it was at a place of different empires or occupations. Uh, so we have always had refugees uh, or populations from outside living in this small country that is Georgia. Uh, for one year, we've had uh, Ukrainian refugees, uh, Russian refugees living together with Georgians whose territory is occupied by Russia. And uh, there was no significant incident happening between these communities. Uh, I think that is very uh, important. Whether it has changed Georgia, I wouldn't say so. Mm. What about bigger picture? And there were so many questions at the beginning of this war over whether this would mark a shift in the world order, in the, in the order that has uh, been created since the Second World War. Do you think it has? I think it has completely. The European Union uh, is no longer the European Union that was doubting before whether it could have a real defense strategy. The fact that uh, countries like Finland or Sweden uh, are now trying to join NATO uh, is an enormous shift. Uh, the relationship between uh, European Union and the United States uh, on such strategic issues has never been, I think, in the past uh, 
years, so close as it is today. Uh, so I think, yes, a new uh, geopolitical uh, image has been forged through oh. the Ukrainian war uh, that will uh, define our future. And the very important thing for Georgia is to be part of that community, whatever the form it takes. Last question, Madam President. You're here in the U.S. You're meeting American officials here. What is your ask? What do you want Americans to know as you continue to, to lead your country and, and push for support for Ukraine? I think that uh, what I want is to share Georgia's experience, which, as I said, is a century-long experience of Russia. Uh, now the West is in the, on the verge of really discovering what is Russia. If Russians and Russian leadership does not understand that what is theirs is theirs and what is not is not, then they, can, they cannot become a full member of the community. And that will be the subject of the peace negotiations whenever they happen. That is the president of Georgia, Salome Bishvili, visiting New York today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Until next time. Until the next time. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American Art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org.